So I don't know if you realize it or not, but as you read the Gospels, as you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you come to learn that Jesus is like one great storyteller. Jesus tells great storyteller stories. He's a great storyteller. No, he's not, he's not just a good storyteller to tell good stories, to draw focus to himself. Jesus tells stories for a purpose. He has a reason for telling stories, and he uses stories because stories are a great way to get a point across. They're a great way to teach, and Jesus does this with just great skill, and you're just drawn to him to hear what he has to say. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a story, and he tells a story that is going to help us this morning as we look at the text that God has for us. It's a story that is going to help us better understand the text that we're in. Jesus says that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who during the day goes and plants wheat in his field. But then at night an enemy comes and an enemy plants weeds in the same field. So in one field, there are wheat, there's wheat, and there are weeds. Well, eventually the wheat sprouts, and the weeds appear. And the farmer's helpers, they see that in the same field, there is wheat, and there are weeds. So the farmer's helpers do what farmer's helpers do, and they ask the farmer, would you like us to take the weeds out of the field? And the farmer says, no, not yet. He says, because if you take the weeds out of the field, you might hurt the wheat. But he says, at the harvest, at the harvest, he asks them to go and to first take the weeds out of the field and burn them and then go and harvest the wheat and bring it into the barn. Now, this is not just a story about wheat and weeds. Jesus himself tells us that this is a story about people, about two different kinds of people, about the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are represented by wheat. The wicked are represented by the weeds. And we learn in the story that the wheat and the weeds are in close proximity together. They both exist in the same field. We also understand from the story that the wheat and the weeds actually look very similar. In fact, it's, it's a bit more telling in some other translations of the Bible. You see, our NIV translates the Greek word used here into the, our word weeds. But there's other translations of the Bible that translate this Greek word into the word tares. It's actually more accurate and helpful. You see, a tear is a type of weed. It's a type of weed that looks a lot like wheat. In fact, it's very difficult to tell the difference between wheat and tares until the harvest when the tares or the weeds are burned in the furnace and the wheat 
is gathered into the barn. Our text for this morning is Isaiah 56 and 57. So I'd ask you to take a Bible and turn to Isaiah 56. It's found on page 602 in the Bible that the church provides in the rack in front of you. And I encourage you to grab one of those Bibles. In Isaiah 56 and 57, God describes for us in a back and forth rhythm the two types of people. Wheat and weeds. The righteous and the wicked. And he does it in powerfully vivid detail. Both the righteous and the wicked are present living together. Just like the wheat and the weeds. But their experience in the present could not be more different. And their futures are very distinct. You see, ultimately in this passage... In Isaiah 56 and 57, just like in Jesus' story about the wheat and the weeds, God is asking us to do something. He is asking us to evaluate ourselves. He is asking us whether we think we are wheat or a weed. He's also asking us to act, to act upon the information that you have. Jesus doesn't just tell a story about wheat and weeds because he is a good storyteller. He tells the story about wheat and weeds because implicit in the story is the question to you and to me, are you a piece of wheat or are you a weed? And here in Isaiah 56 and 57, the exact same thing is happening. In these two chapters, there is a challenge to us towards righteousness, and there is a warning against wickedness. You could say that in Isaiah 56 and 57, what is happening is God is calling us up to righteousness, and he is calling out the wicked. So now let's look at these two chapters at the back and forth between righteousness and wickedness as God separates the wheat and the weeds. First, Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. God speaks to the wheat. Here, God identifies the wheat and challenges the wheat to righteousness. He challenges us to do what is right. Beginning in verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing evil. You see, the righteous, the righteous are those who maintain justice, who preserve justice. They fight for justice. They do what's right, and they recognize that God is near. I love the way that the message translation says this. Look what it says. Do what's right and do it in the right way. For salvation is just around the corner. My setting things right is about to go into action. 
watch your step, and don't do anything evil, exclamation point. Do you see the exclamation point? Don't do anything evil. Do what is right. Do what is right just because it is right. The wheat, those who are righteous, they are the ones who do the right thing. Why? Because God is near and he sees you and he will bless you for doing the right thing. And then in these verses, we see a bit, a bit of a transition. God turns and he welcomes the outcasts to righteousness. Look at verse 3. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. You see, foreigners and eunuchs were considered outcasts. They were banned from participating in Israel's worship. Eunuchs were dry trees, meaning they had no descendants. Foreigners were outsiders. They were different. But God welcomes the foreigner and the eunuch. Look what it says in verse 4 about the eunuch. For the eunuch who pleases God and keeps his covenant. What he's saying is to the eunuch who's righteous, they will have a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will endure forever. And then for the foreigner, look what it says about the foreigner, the foreigner who binds himself to the Lord to minister, who loves the Lord and his servants, to the foreigner who is righteous. God accepts them and gives them joy because all who are righteous, regardless of race, or any other differentiation are welcome in the house of the Lord. Look at, because look at verse 7. God, God is clear. My house will be called a house of prayer for who? All, all nations. So here's the thing. If you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you feel like an outcast, if you feel like an outcast in any way, this message is for you. When you decide to please God, to keep his covenant, to keep his new covenant in Jesus Christ, when you decide that you are going to believe in and upon Jesus Christ, God welcomes you with open arms to call you his child. He will receive you, he will bless you, and he will give you joy. No matter where you are from, no matter what you have done, no matter whether you believe you can contribute much or little, you belong. God opens his arms to welcome you as a child. But this is also a message to the rest of us. And the message is clear as followers of Jesus. If we are wheat, if we are righteous, then we, just like our heavenly Father, must welcome all into this fellowship. 
no matter what they have done, no matter the color of their skin, no matter how they look, no matter how they present themselves, what God is saying is, I open my arms to welcome them. You should open your arms to welcome them as well because in this place, there is no my kind and your kind. Everyone is welcome in this church. That's why this church is called a house of prayer for all nations. Not just some nations, not just some races, not just some ethnic backgrounds, not just some people looking some way, everyone who desires to be called by the name of the Lord. We now jump to some weeds. And this is a warning It's the last few verses of Isaiah 56, verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12 expose the wickedness of Israel's leaders. Now, this is likely the leadership of Israel prior to their exile to Babylon. They're called out. Look at the description. They are blind, ignorant, mute, and lazy. Instead of being watchful, wise, and diligent. They're fiercely devoted to feeding their appetites, and they have great appetites. I think this is probably especially in regard to food. Look what it says in verse 11. Dogs with mighty appetites, they never have enough. This reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, where he says their God is their stomachs. Further, they seek their own interests, their own gain, They can't wait for the next party to drink and get their fill. They assume that their corrupt way of life will go on forever, but it won't. Now here, the danger for us, there is a danger in this for us, because the danger for us is that we can tend to look at these descriptions and think of them simply as character flaws. We think to ourselves, yes, they're problems, But really, they're just character flaws. They're not that big of a deal. You see, often we have a time calling things that are wicked, wicked. But God doesn't have that problem. God has no problem calling out the wicked, and that is what he is doing here. He's calling out the wicked because this is wickedness. Wickedness is anything that deviates from the rules of God. Any deviation from the rules of God is wickedness. Depravity, immorality, sin, it is wickedness. It is not just character flaws. Look at at verse 9. In verse 9, it speaks of a very different feast. Last week, Jim talked about this beautiful feast. This is not such a beautiful feast. Look at verse 9. Wild beasts devour these wicked leaders. You see, people don't get devoured for character flaws. People get devoured for wickedness. And God is calling out these wicked leaders. And this for us is a great warning. A great warning, especially to the leadership of the church to recognize that there is a standard that God calls us to, a standard of righteousness, because in the care of the leadership are the flock, the sheep. And the shepherd has to care for, take care of, watch over, huddle around, protect the sheep. Because the sheep are vulnerable to attack. 
And so God says, be careful if you are a leader because you have a call for the protection of my cherished sheep. But more than just a call or a call up to the leadership, there is in a very real way a call up to all of us. Because as a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, that means that God has placed, I know he has placed at least one person in your life that you are meant to shepherd. There is at least one person in your life that you are meant to lead and care for and protect and watch over and help guide. And God calls us to take this assignment very seriously. And there's a warning to the wicked leadership. And in connection, there's a warning to each of us to make sure we are taking seriously the call to shepherd the sheep or sheeps that God has placed in our care. The focus now jumps back to the wheat. Let's look at how the righteous are rescued, rescued by death. Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2. Read along with me. The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. Now, I think that this past week, many of you, as you tackled the assignment that Jim gave to us last week, many of you, I bet, were caught in these verses. Because death has a way of getting our attention. It's typically not something we like to focus upon because it's painful and it's scary and ultimately it is inevitable, yet these verses bring it to our attention. In many ways, death is our great enemy. But in these two verses, God provides us with an amazing word of comfort as we, as we look at the death of the righteous. It was true for Israel thousands of years ago, and it's true, as true, for us today. Because of Jesus' victory over the grave, because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, death should no longer hold us in terror. We often misunderstand the death of the righteous. We think that God doesn't care. We think that he's thoughtless. We think that he hasn't paid enough attention to us. We even go as far to think that God is mean. But there's nothing that could be further from the truth. Look at what the psalmist writes in Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. What? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his faithful servants. Often we are struck in terror by death. That is not the way that God views the death of the righteous. God says the death of the righteous is precious. Why? Because they are taken to heaven never to suffer again. Look what it says, those who walk uprightly enter into peace. 
No more mourning, no more dying, no more crying, no more pain, no more hurt. The righteous are taken into heaven and find peace and rest. There is no accident in the death of the righteous. And there is no accident in the death of a young person who is righteous. It explicitly says that everyone, even someone dying young, is precious in the sight of God. And it gives us a reason that the death spares the righteous from evil, spares the righteous from wicked, and they get to enjoy the peace and the rest of heaven. Therefore, we should not grieve like those who have no hope because our hope is in Jesus. And Jesus brings life, not just life now, but life eternal, peace and rest. Now another swing. The next 11 verses swing back to expose the wicked. The focus is again upon the weeds and I'm going to be honest, right up front, these are uncomfortable verses. Look at how God starts this section, Isaiah 57, verse 3. But you, but you. Now, this is a warning. This is a call out to the wicked that are out there. But the text says, but you. And he uses words that get our attention. But you, come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and snick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? Here, God is calling out the wicked because it's like the wicked are making faces at God. Remember when you were a little kid? What do you got a little kid in your life? that like makes faces at you? Like they, you, they like know that four-year-old is mocking you and there is really nothing you can do about it because they're just making faces at you. That's what this is like. It's like they're making faces at God. They're mocking him. They're mocking the righteous and, and living rebellious lives. Then God exposes the deeds of the wicked and it's not pretty. The wicked, they do one horrible thing after another. Look what they, they worship idols. They worship rocks and trees. Their idol worship leads them to burn with lust under the trees. This means that their idol worship leads them to engage in sexual immorality. And eventually that sexual immorality leads to ritual prostitution. Look what it also says. They even sacrifice their children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. See, it was not uncommon for pagan gods to be worshipped by human sacrifice, particularly the killing of your own children. The god Moloch, who's mentioned here in verse 9, was not only worshipped with olive oil and perfumes, he was worshipped by offering human sacrifice in the hopes that it would defer his wrath. That's why the people are described as slaughtering their children in the ravines. 
Even the king of Judah, Manasseh, sacrificed his son on the altar of a pagan god. It was an age, an age of idolatry and sexual immorality. It was an age of wickedness, and to be honest, not much has changed. We live in an age of wickedness. We live in an age of idolatry and sexual immorality, and I will tell you the two always go together. Idolatry and sexual immorality always go together. And it is all around us. And let's be clear, Moloch is not our God. Not many of you are bowing down to Moloch. But we have said it before throughout the book of Isaiah that our God tends to be ourselves. We worship at the altar of self and we focus on our needs, we focus on our wants, we focus on our desires, we pursue our perceived rights at the cost of all else. We live in a world where it is me, 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 and unfortunately, the attitude has often infected the church. We live our lives thinking that we are the center of the universe. We worship ourselves. We drink to excess. We eat to excess. We cannot get enough sex of all sorts. We lie and cheat to get more money to buy more things to put in bigger and bigger storehouses. And please don't miss this. Please do not miss this. We sacrifice children as well. We sacrifice our children, both the unborn and the born. All because we have become our own God. This past week, I caught a bit of the presidential debates. There was not one candidate. There was not one candidate who argued for the life of an unborn baby. It is wickedness. And it is sickening. And God sees it. And he calls out the wicked. Look at the question he asked beginning in verse 11. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness in your works and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. You see, the problem here is some people misunderstand the silence of God so they do not fear him. And instead, they choose to follow false gods. Sometimes we can get the idea that because we 
do not hear God because we think he is silent, that he tacitly approves of our wicked actions. That can be no further from the truth. God sees, God knows, and God is clear on what he believes is wickedness. And his silence is just him demonstrating his patience because at some point in time, he is going to expose the wickedness. God will call you out. And he will expose the wickedness. And it says here, he will leave you to your idols to save you. Which they can't. And the wind will just blow it all away. But the good news is that there's hope. There's hope. The text now swings back again to the righteous, to the wheat, Look what God offers beginning in the second half of verse 13. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. You see, God promises here that he will bless the righteous and that he will remove every obstacle for his people to dwell with him. God here is promising to do the work. God is promising restoration. Earlier in the text, we kind of saw the, the, the inability that we have to actually be righteous. Here, the focus is upon God's ability to build up to revive, and to heal. Look at verse 15. This is one of the greatest verses in the whole book of Isaiah. Verse 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, this verse describes God and his dwelling place as those, he describes those who he wants to live one with, those to whom God desires to dwell. God here is revealed, look at how he's revealed, as the high and exalted one. The one who lives forever, whose name is holy. This is awesome. This means that God is supreme above all of his creation. He is over and above everything that he has made. He is greater. He is higher. He is holier. He is above everything. There is an infinite gap that separates him from the rest of the universe. Do you understand what Isaiah is claiming here? God is above all. But the beauty of this is the God who is higher and holier and above all else because of his love for us, because of his mercy, and because of his grace, desires to dwell with those who have a contrite heart and are lowly in spirit. The God of all the God who is above everything, the God who is completely separate from all of his creation, desires to dwell with you. He desires to dwell with me. 
And look what it says. He chooses to draw near and live with those who look, look what it's, who are contrite and lowly in spirit. One who is lowly in spirit is one who is humbled, surrendered, and depending upon God. One who is contrite is one who recognizes their sinfulness and brokenness and cries out to God for forgiveness and healing. This is the type of person that God wants to live with. This is the type of person that God wants to dwell with. One who is contrite and lowly in spirit. You see, do you see the difference? The difference between the wheat and the weeds, the difference between the righteous and the wicked, the wicked are are idolaters and they're sexually immoral. They're all about worshiping themselves and serving themselves. They are proud and they do not think they need God. God resists the proud. The wheat are different. The wheat understand that they need God. So they are lowly in spirit and they have a contrite heart. And that is the person who God wishes to dwell with. And as an aside, that is the person we all wish to hang out with. Nobody likes hanging out with the proud. We all like to hang out with those who are humbled, surrender, and know they need God. So when we look at these acts of wickedness, when I talk about presidential debates and I talk about the wickedness and I, and I t- talk about the sickening nature of it all, our response, our response is one of love. Our response is one of a contrite heart and lowly in spirit. Don't get mad. Be sad and act in that sadness through love. God wants to dwell with those who are contrite in heart and lowly in spirit. And everybody else finds that attractive as well. And then look at verse 18. Verse 18 tells us how God revives the contrite and lowly in spirit. Look what he says he will do. God says, I will heal, I will guide, I will restore, I will comfort. Isn't that what everyone wants? Doesn't everyone want healing, restoration, guidance, and comfort? That's what God is promising to provide those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. I promise, God says, I promise to heal you. I promise to comfort you. I promise to restore you. And then when you act with a contrite and lowly spirit, look what verse 19 says. Praise Praise will be on their lips. Praise will be on your lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them to the righteous, including the idolater and the sexually immoral who repent. God gives peace. Peace in this life and peace in the life to come. That's the promise. But tragically, the text jumps one more time. And it says that the wicked will never know this peace. There's one final call out in verses 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. All they have is restlessness. 
Are you here this morning and you are restless? Because if you're here this morning and you're restless, the text says that there is likely some form of wickedness in your life. My encouragement to you is to recognize that. And with a contrite heart and a lowly spirit, turn to the one who can turn your wickedness into righteousness and give you peace and rest instead of the restlessness. We started this sermon with Jesus. And we're going to end this sermon with Jesus. Because as I studied this text this past week, I was given the text. I prayed. I read. I prayed. I read. I prayed. I read. And I, maybe you feel it this morning, realized the difficulty of the call to righteousness. It's a high call. And I also realized the ease of wickedness. And God called me out. I think he called me up too. But he called me out. And then he reminded me that true righteousness can only be found in Jesus. That everything we try, every act, really never meets God's standard. But in Jesus, when we believe in him, his righteousness covers us. And so when God looks at us, he does not see our wickedness. He sees us as white as snow. So this morning, as we end, my encouragement to you is to recognize your need for Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus. Only Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, surely these are your very words. The words that we have read from the Bible this morning are your words of encouragement and guidance and warning to each of us. Lord, I pray that we would take these words to heart and that in and through Jesus we would pursue righteousness and that we would love against wickedness. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize our need for your Son, Jesus, and recognize that it is all in Him and only Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.